Hello and welcome to the Mega Game Report. My name is Peter Nixon. This is a podcast about mega games, and mega games, for those who don't know, are board game role-playing game hybrids with a little spice of wargaming thrown in, and they generally accommodate very large player accounts. We're talking 20, 60, 100, 300, who knows? It, it can go very, very high. This week, we have friend of the pod, Noah Crow of Tench Dimension Games, and a new friend of the pod, Ben Canellos, who's a game designer out of Ohio. And we're going to talk about Ben's creation, Night Falls, which is a vampire versus villagers mini mega game that all takes place in one night. The mythos is actually pretty cool, and we don't really get into it. I had to cut some of the segments down because we were running long on time. So I'll just have Ben introduce it right here. So like when I started up, I usually say night has fallen. A supernatural darkness has covered this gothic medieval city. And the creatures of the night have begun to stir. We do not know when the sun will rise again. It is up to you and your family once uh, you have all turned to dust and ash to leave a lasting legacy upon this dark world. Yeah, pretty cool, right? Nightfalls is among the kind of the vanguard of a rising subgenre of mega games here in the U.S., where it's meant to be played in a very short time span relative to the other mega games, and it usually involves objective win conditions, hardcore board game mechanics. It's essentially a board game, but with many, many, many teams is the general trend that I'm seeing. Although I'm sure that will vary from project to project. Either way, it's very exciting. It breaks from its traditional mega game roots in some regards, but you still get the mass chaos and the barriers to information that you would at a normal mega game. And of course, the diplomacy, which is the funnest part, right? But anyways, uh, let's get to it. Welcome to the Mega Game Report. My name is Peter Nixon, and I am joined today by Ben Canellos and Noah Crow. And we are here to talk about Night Falls, which is. Ben, it is your design. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, I'm Ben Canellis. I am a game designer, and I'm the designer behind Night Falls, which is sort of a mega game light system. Very cool, very cool. And have you designed any other games before this? Yeah, my social deduction game, Red Scare, just came out earlier this month from Pandasaurus Games, and I have other games in the pipeline either signed or being pitched at the moment that are moving their way through the pipeline. Wow, that's great. I actually have Red Scare uh, on my wish list for CoolStuffInc.com. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great that I get to meet the designer. That sounds very cool. And I'm also joined today by Noah, who's our mutual connection. Uh, Noah's an avid mega gamer. Uh, Noah, why don't you introduce yourself too? This is Noah Crow. I have been an avid gamer all my life. I was in the Marine Corps for almost a decade doing uh, sharpshooting and intelligence and counterintelligence, and now I'm designing games with my brother, and we finally have given ourselves a company and a company name, tends to mention games. We're planning on churning out games like every two or three months, and I recently ran Nightfalls. I ran Ben's game at a local event for free in the hopes that North Carolinans would get a better idea of what mega games were, since it seems like no one in my area has heard of them. Try to get them hooked, you know how it is. And it was a great experience. Originally, I got a copy of Ben's game because I was working on a game with a theme of vampires. My main reason was to see that I didn't accidentally have too much in common with his. <laughs> People have been asking for mega games where they don't have to do all the printing themselves and possibly run for a smaller group. And that's what this system is designed for. I'm in Cleveland, and a local theater group ran a pair of mega games out here. So I've actually not played Watch the Skies, <laughs> like the vast majority of the mega gaming community. But I had such a great time at these events. 
I was like, I want to do this more. I want to play more of these mega games. And then the theater group sort of moved on to other projects, doing sort of other game-inspired work like uh, Escape Room-esque and uh, uh, choose-your-own-adventure-type mm. theater productions. Let's shout out to and, the game group. Do you remember the name? They are called the Theater Ninjas, and they started the Cleveland Mega Game Council, I believe was the name of their group, but that is now defunct. But they are still doing theater productions down in the Cleveland. Very cool. But I had done an RPG system before where I boiled, boiled an RPG down into like a deck of cards so that people could carry an RPG with them. And I was like, you know what? I feel like the, the one thing holding Mega Games back from expanding more is that they have such a high barrier to entry. So... Night Falls is a mega game that takes only one moderator. You can run with as few as eight people, but it's suggested it goes all the way up to 32 players. And it plays in around two to three hours with a rule explanation. So you can get this in at a game night. Uh, additionally, the, the, the physical space required for it is a lot smaller. You only need sort of two tables, one on each side of the room or possibly two separate rooms to run it in. So the idea was if you want to play a mega game, and you can't, you know, get 200 people together in some sort of rented hall. <laughs> mm -hmm. This would be a great alternative to sort of bring people into that experience. Yeah, well, it sounds great. Um, I'd love to do kind of a deeper dive into the rules. I'd be happy to. Just as a sort of surface view, a lot of the things people might expect of a mega game is sort of handled by the moderators. It's a lot of it is, you know, on the spot improv. What I've done is I've sort of pulled a lot of those moderator decisions out and I've sort of replaced them with sort of balanced board game systems. So the mega game boils down to four main stations and you divide the two stations on one side of the room and the other two stations on the other side of the room. And the players split up based off the number of players they have on their team. So the teams are two to four players. And if you have four players, you have one player go to each station. On one side, you sort of have a cityscape and a place where you're playing edicts, and that's where you're moving your units around to try and control the map, area control style. And then you are also playing edicts out there to tell those your units what you want them to do. And then on the other side of the map, or the other side of the room, you have players who are in the council, which is voting for large world-shaking events that will happen each round as well as in the marketplace, buying better edicts and leveling your players up, sort of RPG style. There's sort of like a skill tree that you can level people up. Uh, yeah, the, and, the, and by that, you mean like level the actual players up. Like you're not leveling up your meeples, you're like leveling up yourself. Correct. And additionally, what's a little bit different than a lot of mega games is in order to handle player assassination, your meeple is literally on the cityscape board. So whoever's running that is always putting you at risk if they move you into enemy territory, but they might want to move you into enemy territory because if you're a high level, you're less likely to get killed. But then again, if you die, you're losing a lot more resources and such. So the, the key is your, your players, if you're on a four player team, each player has access to one station. And if you're on one side of the room, you can't go to the other side of the room to discuss or look at what's happening on their board. You have to pull players to sort of a neutral zone in between to have your discussions. So uh, you're constantly pulling people out and trying to talk to them and coordinate with your team and find out what's going on uh, on their side of the board to try and maximize what you're going to get in during your game turn. Yeah, and I should say that this is kind of the classic setup where there's two phases. There's kind of like the, the group everyone to get together and discuss and di diplomatize. I, I don't know the word, but um, negotiate. There you go. And then there's the other, the other phase where they go to the kind of the individual stations, right? 
it's sort of you have the real time aspect of when people are playing the game, which is sort of the larger portion of it. And then at an increment of time, which sort of reduces as the game goes on, the moderator stops the play and they just sort of resolve the actions the players have taken. That usually takes about three to five minutes and players are sort of free to have their little sidebar discussions while the moderator sort of resets the board and then you start up. Ben, Mm -hmm. is that three to five minutes per station or is that for the whole round? For the whole round. Wow. yeah, uh, most most everything that the, the moderator is going to be resolving is basically in the cityscape and the edicts, seeing what people told their units to do, as well as putting the event into play. Then you basically count up your power and uh, reset your meeples back to upright and set everyone back to the neutral zone, and you can start another round. The nice thing about that is... It's really snappy, and unlike a lot of mega games where you're sort of assigned a role, players can go to different stations on subsequent rounds. So if they don't really like what they were doing the first round, they're not locked into, well, I guess I'm just going to be in the council voting for something the rest of the game. They can try something else that they might enjoy more, they feel like their skill set is better equipped for. Yeah, which is a great mechanic because God knows it's just, you feel bad for the players who get bad roles. So the main actual points... For the game, the victory points driver is satisfying that these cards called legacies, right? Which is kind of like these victory conditions. Is that correct? Yeah. So the idea that to make it appeal more to board gamers, I mean, this is you got mega gamers probably listening to this podcast, so they're probably already sold on mega games. But I find I usually have to pull in lots of board gamers to sort of fill in the player count and Board gamers want to win. They're all for a good story here and there, but they definitely want to know, like, numerically, did I come out on top? And so the way I handle that is each team will start with a legacy, and these legacies sort of convert player actions into victory points for doing certain things within the game. So some legacies, it's like, did you buy uh, such and such edicts, or did you have a lot of power at the end of the game, or did you get a lot of things passed in council? And these are secrets. So no one knows, unless you go telling everybody, what you're trying to do, which sort of helps because if a, if a team looks like they're winning out on the power board or in the cityscape, they may not be winning at all because unless they have legacies that are tied to that. And then as the game progresses, people are earning these very high-end currencies called legacy tokens, which can be used for two things. The first thing you can do is you can purchase additional legacies for your team or different legacies if you already have three to sort of try and maximize what your team's doing. And then the other interesting thing you can do with a legacy token is you can place it on the daybreak sport, which is sort of tracking the rounds to sort of buy off turns to sort of shorten the game. So that's sort of, I know uh, maybe last turn madness is not a bug, it's a feature of mega gaming, but I tried to avoid that by players aren't sure if they are winning or not at any certain at any point you can have a feeling whether or not you're doing well with your legacies additionally you're not exactly sure when the game will end because if some team is really running up with legacy tokens and they feel pretty confident about uh, where they're sitting they may knock a turn or two off the off the game and so you're always incentivized to be playing hard the entire way from start to finish because you're never quite certain when things are gonna you know come to a close yeah, that sounds like a great way around the classic Last Turn Madness. Quick clarification, are the legacy tokens, are they also victory points, or are they separate? No, the only thing that will earn you points at the end of the game are your legacies. So players are incentivized. The only person who can buy those additional legacies is the person in the council. So 
people will be talking to their council person and be like, listen, you know, like if you see anything come up about like having a lot of money, you know, get that because like we have a lot of ways to generate assets and stuff like that. And so it's, it lets you really communicate. And additionally, people in just about every station can earn these legacy tokens. So everyone is working together to try and get this sort of high-end currency in order to sort of further your team's agendas. Gotcha. I think from here we can kind of just jump into the individual roles. Yeah, well, I mean, why don't you take it away? We were talking about council actions earlier. So one of the things they can do is get legacies, which, as you mentioned, they don't know how effective those will actually be, (laughs) which is a a very interesting (laughs) mechanic. What else do they do? So the council person, every round will be voting for some event, and each team will have events in their hand, and they can propose one, and whichever event gets the highest number of votes will go into play during the the resolution that round. And so what are these events like? They're they're big things. (laughs) Okay. They let you, they're a whole host of variety of, of different things. So some of them make it so no one can attack that round, which could probably, you know, put the kibosh on someone's very aggressive plan. And some things will make it easier or harder to make money or bet or, or beat down the team that's winning or help the teams that are losing or add just a bit of chaos to the game in interesting manners. So whoever's in the council really needs to get, you know, with the other members of their team to find out what they're looking to try and happen. Because even though they have a couple events that they're looking at that they might propose. They, If another event shows up that everyone's getting ready to vote on, they have to have a good feeling whether or not they should be putting that into play or not. That's also happening right next to the marketplace. And the marketplace is where people are trading. So people will be earning, the people in the edicts will be earning assets and you can buy additional edicts for the person in the edict side or like we said, you can buy advancements which level up specific players. Additionally, both of the council and the marketplace, they're they're being affected by something in the cityscape called power. At the end of each round in the cityscape, we count the number of territories you have control over, and that sort of boils down to one big number called your power. In the council, the number of the power of your vote when you point at one of the edicts or the events that you want to happen is equal to your team's power for that round. So if your team controls a lot of territory, you have a stronger voting power. Additionally, in the marketplace, you're allowed to put stuff into your stock that costs equal to or less than your team's power, and then you can sell that for whatever cost you want. So instead of a currency leaving the system when you're buying from the marketplace directly, you can go up to another player and be like, hey, I saw that you stocked this advancement I really want. What can I sell? What can I buy this from? You know, like what's your cost? And people can trade, give it away for free if they want. So they can give it away for favors or jack up the price or uh, propose all sorts of trades. So in the marketplace, people are just getting real crazy trying to move stuff around. Wow. Yeah. And that's a great way to put it because you don't have to have a moderator look over these transactions, which is great. Right. It's it's all set. If it's, if it's in your stock because you were able to stock it because your team got you enough power, then you can do what you want with it. The only thing you can't do is give it to yourself, but you can give it to another team in the hopes that they'll give it right back to you if you, that's something you work out with them. But the moment you hand them that card, <laughs> it's theirs to do what they want with it. So I've seen people be like, yeah, I'll give you that card. Let's do a nice even trade. And the moment that pro person hands them like that juicy level three advancement that person's like i'm gonna go give this to someone on my team now sorry goodbye (laughs) wow that's (laughs) that is savage (laughs) 
Yeah, you can, but then people don't want to trade with them so much. So it's all about how you manage those expectations and those relationships in the game. What's happening on the other side of the room is a lot less sort of social and much more board gamey. It's for those tactical war gamers. You have like a hex map where players are going to be moving their units around. Some of those are player units. And that's where you're trying to gain control of territories. And you're also putting down things called barricades, which let you stop movement between the hexes. Basically, unlike a lot of traditional mega games where you have defined start territories and these maps that are laid out with defined borders, you're basically starting on a field of hexes. And it's up to the players to negotiate amongst themselves, like their alliances and where they're going to set the borders with the barricades because each team only has three to work with. And on a hex, you know, on a big hex map, those three barricades don't go very far. And finally, the other person on that side is playing in the edicts. So a couple of things about that is one, it's a very small map. We have so many hexagons to work with. And if you carve out three hexagons, I mean, that sounds like a lot. Is that correct? Or is that, am I oh, Yeah, like if, if you were able to carve out a three hexagon sort of territory and have no one else in it, I'd be saying you're doing phenomenally well. But uh, it's a very... But you only have uh, three barricades per player. And the more players, you, the more teams you have, the bigger the map gets. Wow. Yes, it works proportionally, but it'll always be tight. So you will almost always see teams grouping up in groups of two or three to try and hold territory together. But then you're always at risk of them turning on you and killing off a bunch of your players to get some legacy tokens out of the graveyard. So it's meant to be very tight and very tense the entire time. Because like from turn on, you know, basically from turn one, people are like getting next to you and mixing it up. That I mean that that forced alliance or forced interaction is so great. Um, I, yeah, I'm I just talking about this game gets me excited about it. Uh, I, hope, <laughs> I hope I get to play it sometime. Uh, yeah, and then the other thing about the cityscape, and this isn't elaborated very much on in the rules, is there there are also building tiles. Yeah, in order to make the hex map a little bit more interesting, certain tiles will have buildings on them. And those will basically incentivize or disincentivize players to put their units there because some of the buildings make it easier for your guys to die there. But, you know, then people won't be putting a bunch of dudes there and others will do other sort of bonus effects like make it so you get money out of that hex easier or more units out of that hex easier or it's easier to be able to be defended or makes your meeples more agile. Basically, some of them let you move through barricades and do other interesting things. So... Even though it's just a hex map, there will be sort of like a psychic map that players are going to build in their head of like what is valuable, what's not valuable, who, what teams do I trust mixing my meeples with, what teams don't I trust mixing my meeples with, where do I want to put my barricades and how do I want to you know, coordinate this thing where I can build my power as big as possible with as few units as possible because the other twist to this is your meeples are doing double duty. They are either units out on the cityscape but they are also your assets that basically you're the the marker of your currency and you only have a set amount within your bank so if you spread a bunch of units out into the cityscape you're going to have a hard time getting currency because you're going to be running up against that hard limit whereas if you do the opposite you may be flush with cash but then not have much power to help your people in the council and the marketplace so it's all about you know, how do you balance that and what does your team want from you at that moment? Yeah, that's a great juicy decision to be making. Yeah. And then so that brings us to edicts, right? 
Yep, the edicts. So each of these tiles has like a numer- numeric letter, and in the edicts, uh, players can play. Players will start with these. Their five basic edicts, which is attack, which will kill little baby meeples, which are your min- minions. Hunts, which will kill the big tall meeples, which are your player units, and defend, which makes it harder to be attacked or hunted. And I guess we didn't speak about the theme of this game. It's vampires and villagers are the sort of starting factions. And they both produce cur- Ooh, uh, assets. Starting factions. That's an interesting way to phrase it. <laughs> the idea is it is vampires and villagers as the least viable product that I was showing to the publishers. And since this will be a Kickstarter product, we are going to be having additional factions, you know, expansions that will be stretch goals. So I've already worked out one with Cthulhu cultists as a, as a sort of villagers substitute where they're in the events you can then raise Cthulhu and other Lovecraft beasts that stick around permanently and start really messing stuff up all around the world. <laughs> wow, but, awesome. But the, the vampires and villagers, they make assets and more of their units in a very different way. The villagers, if you have someone labor, they get two assets off that tile, but every vampire that's on that tile reduces the number of assets they take by one. So they could tell someone to go to work, and if there's too many vampires out, they don't go to work, and they don't get any money out of that tile. And we should say that to get someone to labor is to physically play an edict card? Yes. So everyone starts with those five edict cards, and then you start with these cards that have your team's color seal on them, and all you have to do to issue an edict is put whatever edict you want face down on that on that letter of the edict board and then put your color seal over it and when it gets to the resolution phase what i do is i pick those all up and i flip them over and we go in the order of power least to greatest because the more power you have the harder it is to make yourself heard because you've got you control such a large territory so and it's also sort of a catch-up mechanism for the teams who have less power and we, you could play one edict per tile, and we just go in order. And if you're ever tied with power with another team, it's whoever played it first. So you're sort of incentivized to sort of figure out when you need to play these and if you need to play them fast, or you can wait to see where your meeples move around. Because remember, you're not moving those meeples. That's the person who's running the cityscape. So you have to coordinate with them uh, where people are going to be when and what you want them to be doing on certain tiles. I would say that, as control, this was the most fun part of the game for me as control was to watch the chaos at these two tables because basically <laughs> you've got one person on your team moving your risk pieces and a different person on your team puts down an edict card, which is basically the action that you choose for that meeple to do. So one person is steering the car and the other person is deciding like what you do when you get there. And the interesting thing is that you have to put down your action on the space that you assume like that person is going to put their meeple on by the turn's end and you you have to make an assumption about what you what they want you to have them do there. So one guy is just in charge of movement and the other guy is the halo rider and the turret gun. It's also very fun because it's in real time. So you have to do this balancing act if you're the person in charge of the edict actions as to, well, do I want to put them down really fast so that my actions happen first? Because if I can kill your guy first, then your action won't happen because he's dead. Or, you know, do I not want to take that risk because my partner might not even put a guy on that space. So maybe I want to go last and make sure I don't waste a single edict. So that's the dilemma you have to do there. So, so once I you put once you put fun. down an edict, is it like is it down? Is it done? Can you not take it back up? It's down. 
Wow. Yeah. Ooh, man, that is that's <laughs> that's intense. <laughs> additionally, additionally, you're not allowed to go digging through the stack to see what you played. So frequently people will play an edict and then go have a conversation and then come back and be like, oh, crud, I don't remember what I played where. And <laughs> <laughs> and I, I put as the moderator, you you resolve the first one they played, the one that's, you know, on the bottom of the stack. So even if people go back and put more down, they'll be like, oh, that was for sure an attack because that's what I put down there. And I'm like, no, I came to the defend first. And that's what you decided to do first there. So it's a lot it, when, when we get to resolution and everyone's watching the, the cityscape and the edict board as you're running through the edicts, it's often a comedy of errors where you see two teams like saying, yes, this is where we're going to kill the purple team member. And all of a sudden they're like, wait, we both played defend edicts. What were you doing? So. <laughs> <laughs> and so just to finish what I was talking about, the edicts, the interesting thing is the, the villagers, they get meeples and assets. They'll get two per hextile minus the number of vampires that are on there. So as the vampires move into their territory, the villagers are naturally inclined to like get them out of their territory and move somewhere else. Whereas the vampires, the only way they get assets is if they drink from a villager. And the only way for them to get additional units is to turn one of the villager units into one of the vampire units. So the vampires have the exact opposite end of that equation where like they're constantly chasing after the villagers because that's the only way they can get money and more dudes to get more power on the board. And so it's it's a very unique sort of teeter-totter between those two trying to keep their populations in check. I'm curious, would this cultist faction... Uh, would they function the same way as humans, where they would generate more people the same way? Or would they have a third spawning the, the mechanism? The cultists do, in fact, have a third spawning mechanism. So the idea behind this, there is sort of neutral language. The vampires are quote-unquote monsters, and the villagers are quote-unquote humans. So you only need an even number of human factions and an even number of monster factions. So you can sub out as many villager factions for cultists. Cultists always only get one asset or one additional cultist no matter what's happening on that hex. But for every two mythos creatures that they were able to summon in the council place, they get one additional asset or one additional uh, cultist out on the board. So they sort of are a slow burn. They start to start slow. They can't really expand as fast as the, va- as the villagers or cannibalize uh, the villagers like the vampires can. But like once they get like three or four mythos beings like going out and ruining the world and then all of a sudden like they're just exploding everywhere and and if if the other factions don't like turn around and keep it in check the cultists can definitely take over so from here we could jump into no i know you play tested it recently I'd be interested in your mm-hmm. thoughts about how it wins uh, how it compares to other mega games that type of stuff sure so i was running this one in raleigh north carolina and I thought this would be the perfect first one to do because I was wondering which one to do and whether I wanted to take the financial risks to, you know, put one of my own up being untested and all in the area because it seemed like no one had heard of it and no one did mega games down here. And I was like the only game in town. So I thought, oh, this is perfect. This will be a nice gateway drug. <laughs> so it was scary at first because I advertised it through this gaming group for, for weeks ahead of time. And the day of, there was like not a single registration, even though it was free. So I decided to switch tracks instead of saying like, come on, I need a minimum of this many people. I decided to switch tracks, try some reverse psychology. Instead, I wanted to make it sound more exclusive so when the night finally came i was like we can only take 16 people and that's it so if you don't 
get on this list, you're not getting in the game. And then everyone started like signing up. So, so, <laughs> so uh, we got the full 16 that I asked for and then I closed it off and I was like, nope, sorry, that's it. So that's how I got my people. And this is a relatively small game night at, a, at like a local pub. And so people were enjoying a good beer and the, the game started and people were only willing to donate about – uh, an hour to 90 minutes of their time. So I did some of the things the rules suggested to shorten the game, starting people off with more resources and cutting off maybe like, I don't know, 30% of the turns on the, on the turn space thing. But at the end of the day, it was an interesting time. We had some unique players who did some unique things. You know, they always do, players always do things you don't expect. But I, I ran control all by myself and the game was like well designed for that to be possible. Players in my game tr- tended to try every station. They wanted to try them all. So they moved around a lot. And I'd say the average play- player tried all four. And they had never played mega games before. Maybe one of them had out of 16. Interestingly enough, no one killed anyone in the quote like normal way. Like uh, an attack edict was never played. The vampires were all trying to be very clever. And they were like, why kill someone when I can turn them into a vampire? And the villagers were like, oh, let's just zerg these dudes. Let's not kill them. Let's just spawn tons of villagers so no one ever got killed that was interesting and then we had a bout of cheating we had a couple of cheaters which was very interesting because i had never dealt with that before and i had always heard these horror stories from mega gamers about like people who had cheated in their games so i was like oh that'll probably never happen to me was, you know grown-ass adults but but it happened and uh one was like subtle cheating one was pretty overt cheating both of them were claiming it was accidents i'll give you an example turn initiative so a lot a lot of everything is like simultaneous and in real time and uh when two people's hands reach for the same thing at the same time i say look the rules just say whoever's got lower power you know whoever's losing gets to go first but most of the game the teams were tied like most of the game at least three teams were, were tied and they were like well how do we break ties and i would say like oh well just you know you're grown-ups. Just figure it out. You can do paper, scissors, rock. You can flip a coin. Just, uh, just work it out. And you know, the guy standing in front of me, uh, he he had reached for it. This is the same guy, same time as the other guy. And he's like, okay. And he like muscled it, like wrestled it out of the other guy's hand, and was like, that's how I handle it. And <laughs> I don't know if alcohol is a factor or if he's just that way. But I was like, uh. All right, so maybe we can let this slide. But then, you know, some of the other players were like, that guy's been taking, like, meeples out of the bag, like, whenever he feels like it. And I was like, come on, are you guys really, like, is this really happening right now? Is this is this kindergarten or are these or are you guys grown-ups? And I was like, I don't know what to say. I, I just stopped the whole game. I was like, let me make an announcement. I don't know how else to put this, but cheating is against the rules, stop it <laughs> i was like i'm not sure what to do here if i if i throw the the two cheaters out then their teams probably suffer and that's not their fault so i wasn't sure how to handle that but i was like look we'll just start docking victory points or something but please don't break the break the game by by cheating and they were like oh i thought we were allowed to take meeples out of the bag whenever we wanted and i was like okay i don't think you thought that so that was a whole like interesting thing yeah so cheating is a weird thing for me. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. It's the world we yeah, live in Yeah, I mean, that's a crazy situation. Like, I, I can honestly say that I've never witnessed cheating at any of the mega games I've been at. The shortest path connection that I see is is between cheating and, like, alcohol and, like, being at a pub. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I mean, people weren't, like, falling down drunk, so I don't know if we can give them that benefit of the doubt. But, I mean, there were a lot of instances. It was mostly all, like, turn initiative. Like, people would hover their hands over things, and when I'd say, okay, start turn, people would, like, push each other out of the way physically, slam things down, move each other's hands out of the way. And I was like, uh, well, look, the initiative turn order is power, low power versus high power. And people were just like, yeah, okay, whatever. And they were just like, I got it there first. And I was like, well, that's not exactly how it works. And people just were like not listening. But other than that, it was it was still an overall fun game. It was a fun experience. Like those people were definitely in the minority. So I'll mention like a few other miscellaneous things. And then I'll give, just give my like summary of, of what I thought of the game. I know Ben was mentioning that that your your goals are secret. And to that, I would say if you've got a notepad on you, they're not. Because <laughs> if you're in the area where people are buying goals, you could just watch what they buy and write it down. And a lot of people had little pocket notebooks and they would just write down what other people got as their goals. Um, huh, did and they bring those so, or like where did those come from? I mean, it's game night, so people have pens and pencils and paper. Okay, yeah. Hmm. And then speaking of goals, by the end of the night, people were calling everything by simpler words. So they were calling... They were they were calling legacies goals. They were calling edicts actions. They were calling exhausting units, tipping them because they would just knock them down. They were calling assets money. They were calling units meeples, and they were calling power ranks. So by the end of the game, it's like they had invented their own little like simplified language. But I was like, whatever, as long whatever it takes for you to understand the game, that's fine. At the end of the game, the whole thing only took seventy minutes. It was super fast, but it still felt like a totally complete mini mega game experience and <laughs> felt just yeah. as exhausted by the end <laughs> yeah yeah and after 70 minutes it was it was great i did a lot of shouting because there was no mic and it was a really loud bar but we had because it was game night we had our own little section set up and so you know i'm dragging tables and and people are like what is this guy doing he's setting up before game night even started look at this guy it was really fun but for my summary usually i do like the the biggest con and then like the biggest pro I got to start off by saying it is ridiculously awkward to like to discuss cons and like criticize a game right in front of the maker. (laughs) I hope you don't take any offense. (laughs) I've been doing this long enough. I've got a thick skin and and I'm actually looking for the negative so that when we take it to Kickstarter or we do further development with it, I know like what things need to be, you know, shaved down or altered or tweaked. Okay, number one con. For me and my personality was the uh, disconnect between theme and mechanics in some areas in the sense that I think it would offend simulationists. Like, you know, you have different gamer types. You have like narrativists, illusionists, gamists and simulationists. And I think that it might offend simulationists in that there is no clear explanation, at least in the prototype, as to like how something is possible so how is it that vampires and humans are getting together on a council to vote on world enchantments uh like spells that affect the whole world or something like that why would they even work together it could be like there could be a fun explanation but we don't know what it is how is it that you get new legacies what does it represent to get like a new goal card in your hand like why do you now have a new goal and how do players speed up the sun and like make it race across the sky faster like how do you how do you like literally make the dawn come faster is it a spell or like how would the humans do it so 
I think that there's like some untapped potential there. I think uh, it would be interesting if you said like, hey, the the guy who's placing the edict cards, he's the He's like the team sergeant on the scene and and then like the guy moving the pieces at the city. He's like he's like an overall general kind of guy. So he's like he's giving you orders to go here. But then only the soldiers on the ground are actually deciding what happens once you're there. And there could be more fun flavor text in the rules. I'm sure there will be uh, when it's finally like kickstarted. But yeah, there, it uh, sounds like what would benefit this is like an epic backstory of some kind. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then, like, uh, some more asymmetry would be fun. I think his Cthulhu idea is a great idea because there's very little difference at the beginning of the game between uh, one vampire and another vampire or, like, one human team and another human team until you start getting your, your powers because, like a board game, it starts out very balanced and very symmetric other than the vampires chasing and the humans running away. I thought it was very fun that powers that you buy and that like when you tech up, you wear it around your neck with these cool little like necklaces and, and it says your power like right there on your chest. I thought that was very cool. But all in all, yeah, like I thought what would be like a really cool thing to include with the final game would in the rule book would be like a scenario where you have like a special unbalanced asymmetric map with like the hot gates like on one side and like a castle with all the vampires uh, and then or, or like maybe just two vampires or something like that and then on the other side of the map as it like as the funnel opens up a bunch of like the village hexes with humans and maybe they have to like storm the castle through the bottleneck or something like that you are in fact talking about scenarios which is something i cut from the rule book just so that it wouldn't go more than 14 pages so for sure, that is something that I've I've wanted to develop in the future. So, I mean, I'm hearing you loud and clear. And the hope is that the base game that people who are unfamiliar with mega games can pull out and play and have a nice balanced experience where no one's going to have their feelings get hurt because they felt like they were powerless. But then they can go and they can make tweaks to the game or set up a different map or play a scenario in a different way uh, or basically alter the game to their heart's content to make it feel more like a traditional mega game where you have those types of imbalances uh, from the start of the game. That's true. I feel like I feel like I could do a lot of that on my own. And then for my pros, the, the number one pro was that it seems like Ben thought of everything in the sense that like, if you're if you find yourself uh, wondering about a rule or something like that, you look at the board and you're like, oh, he wrote it right there in the margins. And then uh, if you're um, if when you're packing this stuff away, it's like, oh, this folds up. These all fold up into the same shape and size that fits right. Th- okay, that's perfect. And then when you're playing the game, if you're like, oh well, I only have four players or I only have four teams, not 24 teams, so I don't need this section of the board. And then it's like, oh, oh, it just folds under right there. Look at that. So. Um, it's clear that like there was a lot of attention to detail and there's like a huge apparent emphasis on like convenience. And if the aim is, is to be simple enough that board gamers can start to understand how mega games work, then it succeeds. Like it, it met its goal. So it's very good. Kind of uh, like Aegon's Conquest mega game. It's a glorified board game and the board gamers had no problem figuring it out. There was a little bit of confusion with like learning the rules and as board gamers they didn't get that uh part of like traditional mega gaming where it's like you're not really supposed to master the rules 
till, you know, like a third of the way through, if then, or if at all, and mastering them in real time is part of the fun. And, you know, some of them were thinking like, I just, I just want to play it a second or third time because now I know the rules. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but nothing will ever be as fun as the first time when you were like, uh, when, when there was that chaos, but you know, people have different personalities. So here it's all pre thought out for you. And as I told the players that night, I was like, so if you all want to know what like a full on mega game is like, it would be like this, except most of the cards would be blank and you would get to write the cards. And, um, and that appeals to some creative people and it doesn't appear to appeal to some other personalities. The only downside is that there's no emergent gameplay, but that's good if you only have one control. Like I was the only control. It would have been difficult for me to do emergent gameplay on my own. Yeah. I was a little bit time on it too, right? Exactly. I was a little bit sad that at mine there was zero role playing and it was, you know, partly the board game atmosphere and partly like the type of people that were playing. No one came dressed up or in cosplay and there and there no one ever spoke in character. But it just wasn't that sort of game unless I don't know. Ben, did you have much like role playing at yours? Did people walk around with sporting accents or capes not at my events but the publisher is familiar with the vampire the masquerade community and they ran an event where people were dressed up and were getting mm-hmm. into their characters and such mm-hmm. so that aspect is there i definitely come from a very board game centric <laughs> player player base so i've never had the pleasure of having people don accents and get into character as much as uh, i have seen at traditional mega games Right. And then I've got some things that I couldn't decide whether they were pros or cons or if they were both. For example, you know when the last turn is going to be unless somebody bum rushes it by paying it down all of a sudden like it's right in front of you. And I usually hide my last turn from players because I don't want last turn madness. But this is a but well, these players don't have nuclear weapons, so you don't really worry about last turn madness it's kind of a non-issue because like what are they going to do that with pre-written cards they don't really have the power to be silly or and and they don't want to be silly because it's a win or lose type of game so you don't really worry about last turn idiocy (laughs) so it's kind of okay that they know when it's coming they're not going to act out of character because like i just said they're they're never in character i am a little curious as to how often the players can how often do they take advantage of bum rushing the finish and having it finish faster in about two-thirds of my games uh at least a turn has been knocked off and a smaller portion uh more than that and every once in a while i have a game where people don't knock anything off so funny story there's an event there that lets you extend the game by one turn basically push the sun token back a little bit and so this one team was bum rushing the end super hard and they thought they had everything wrapped up and they were celebrating and then the event came into play because their their council person just wasn't paying attention and they saw there was one more turn and they basically just played their hand and told everybody what they were trying to do <laughs> and all the other teams had all the time in the world now to 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 dismantle their carefully laid plans that they that they had put into play so the classic like risk overextension yeah, it was interesting because the one place where it doesn't behoove you to be behind in points is uh, is the council where you're where you're voting on these world changing events. There, you multiply your votes by your power and your rank. So, when the vampires got ahead, they stayed ahead the whole game because. Uh, they had eight times as many votes as the human teams, and so they were always winning 
the votes. And so they always got to put the world-changing event that they wanted in play, which led to them keeping a stranglehold on the lead. And so it was very hard for the human players to catch up. Um, but yeah, it was a fun game. I would love to make like a werewolf expansion in the game alongside the Cthulhu cultists. Uh, I, I suppose in the end, if it's popular enough, you could have as many uh, factions as smash up, you know, fingers but, crossed. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of like, uh, when you said starting factions, the first thing that popped in my head was like, Oh my God, are factions introduced midway through the game? Like all of a sudden someone's bit by a werewolf, that type of thing. Like the, the team in last is bit by a werewolf and all of a sudden they start to come back. It would be interesting if you could actually like turn a player character and force them to join the vampire team. That'd be interesting. There are optional rules in there for teams. Uh, so you only need two players to form a team and the maximum number of players you can have on a team is four. So there are rules in there of two team, two players from a team want to splinter mm-hmm. off and form their own team. You just give them a new color and put a couple meeples on the board and they're off to the races and they can do whatever they want. I've I've had teams splinter and basically dissolve and be consumed by the other teams in games and stuff like that. So things can happen mid mid game, but I'm you know, I definitely am aiming this as a product towards board gamers who are interested in mega gaming. And so that's why there are changes, you know, that keep it balanced so that you aren't walking around with nukes in your pocket with a bunch of last turn madness. And that's why there is the legacies for winners and losers. But like, this is meant to be like, like Dungeons and Dragons is a role playing system, you know, and you can play it any which way you want, you know, with that sort of fundamental architecture underpinning everything. And that's what I'm hoping Nightfalls can be for the mega gaming community is this sort of, first step into the mega gaming world and then for players who want to try stuff like go ahead like modify to your heart's content like write scenarios or pull out cards or make your own cards or introduce you know your own emergent gameplay rules and stuff like that like i'm all for it i just want i want there to be more mega gaming out there in the world and this was sort of my way of making that happen especially since i'm in an area that just doesn't have a mega game group putting on these large-scale events anymore like for me it's like conventions are nothing you know <laughs> at this point <laughs> to, to get my mega gaming in and so like right. uh there's there's nothing i enjoy more than you know calling up a library reserving like a meeting room a couple <clears> months <throat> out and putting together a facebook event and getting like 24 people to show up on a saturday afternoon to like run around and yell like be sure to burn down the alchemist lab you know with that <laughs> event and <laughs> careful careful you can't trust yellow vampires anymore they're 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 gonna eat us all up you know and you just hear people go nuts for about two hours and then you you tally up your legacies and you see how well each team did and that was night falls by ben canellos Night Falls has actually been picked up for mass publication by Everything Epic Games. If you want to follow Ben, he is BK Game Design on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Additionally, Ben is actually ready and able to hand out alpha copies of Night Falls in order to generate interest. Night Falls will be going up on a Kickstarter soon, so they want to get those alpha copies out to kind of generate interest. So if you are interested in putting on a mini mega game in your area, totally reach out to Ben and he will totally get you an alpha copy. He is just that friendly. <laughs> 
Uh, ben also is actually the designer of Red Scare, which is a social deduction game that I have played and thoroughly enjoyed. I did not know he was a designer of that until I interviewed him. On the flip side, Noah Crow will be at PAX Unplugged, so if you want to run into him at Scott Silsby's Future Tense or one of the other mega games and go on there, totally say hey. Noah and his brother together are at 10th Dimension Games, and they have several projects under their belt, including a Watch the Skies that just happened this last week by the time this podcast comes out. But if you missed it, don't worry. They have plenty of other projects to boot, including some very excited stuff just under the hood that I am not allowed to reveal yet. Email in at megagamereport at gmail.com and join the Mega Game Makers Facebook group if you haven't already. There's always some lively discussion going on there. So until next time, this is the Mega Game Report signing out. <laughs>